All right, ladies and gentlemen, uh, welcome. Thanks for coming out again. Tonight, uh, question 16, or no, question 12 in the history of philosophy in 16 questions. Uh, and the question is, what was reborn? Um, and this is an exploration of the Renaissance, which is generally, well, Renaissance means reborn. Um, and generally speaking, almost nothing, with one important exception, was reborn. So we'll talk about that. But it was really not so much as a, a Renaissance um, as a blending together of elements that had been in existence the entire time. So that's what's important. As, as a timeline goes, you know, when does the Renaissance start again? This is one of those, you know, pick a beginning and someone can say you're wrong. So roughly 1350s, 1360s, 1370s, pick a date. Um, some people go a little earlier, some people go a little later. Two, you know, when the, Reform when the uh, not the Reformation, when the uh, Ref War of the Reformation really gets going, um, you know, 14, uh, 1550, 1560, and 1570, pick a date, right? Again, it's, it's, some people go as late as the 1600s. Uh, but I like the term, it's the, it's the long 14th century. I mean, it's long 15th century, which is about 1350 to about 1550. So it's, you know, about 200 years, but it's all centered right there on the 15th century. Um, and, and again, going back to where we ended last time, I said one of the important, if not most important, elements for the Renaissance was the Islamic Golden Age. Um, and the influence is titanic. And so if you look at a figure, and we'll look at several figures, um, like Petrarch or uh, just about anybody, Botticelli, uh, Brunelleschi, who we'll talk about, they're accessing ancient texts, many of which are coming into the Renaissance from translations that are authored by uh, people working on Islamic texts, often working with Islamic scholars. So the classic example is uh, Thomas Aquinas. Now Thomas Aquinas did his Summa Theologica in the 1250s, uh, and, and clearly the most influential religious text during the Renaissance was, well, until you get to Luther, um, it is the Summa Theologica. And what it was was a mix of questions. It's, it's, it's an order of questions. So things like, what the hell is going on with the Trinity? I paraphrase. Um, and, then, and, then, and then the answer, the answer is, uses Aristotelian logic, concepts, and uh, examples, and principles to elucidate the answers to fundamental religious questions. So it was this sort of amazing combination of Catholic theology and Aristotelian philosophy. And it was supposed to be the perfect mix of these two things, hence bringing the, the, the power of the ancients into accord with the uh, revealed uh, truth of the Catholic Church. And what's extraordinary about this is that his Aristotle was more or less directly taken from Averroes, often directly, word for word, not just as translation, but also the commentary. And Averroes was known as the commentator. All the, all the Renaissance scholars referred to him as the commentator. Right? That was, that's, you don't say Averroes, he's just the, he's the guy. And so St. Thomas Aquinas is working with these texts and going, well, that's a good idea. I'll copy that in, and that's a good idea. But he's using it to justify, explain, and rationalize Catholic theology. Now, what's important here is, is 
this long-running, and this happened the same exact in the Islamic Golden Age, debate between the Aristotelian philosophers and the Platonist and really Neoplatonist philosophers. And it's a gross simplification, but you can think of one, Aristotle, logic and reason. Logic and reason is vested in the human mind and capacity. Um, Neoplatonist, metaphysics. You can't get there with reason. Not that reason's bad, mind you, but it only takes you so far, and then you run into these barriers that you have to overcome with faith or divine revelation or some sort of mystical experience that then carries you beyond. Um, and so basically, St. Thomas Aquinas can be read as a long-running debate with... Uh, you know, Augustine of, of Hippo, right, where um, who's, who was much more in the Neoplatonist tradition several hundred years, many hundreds of years earlier, but basically arguing for revelation, uh, faith, reason won't get you there, logic won't get you there. By the way, this mirrors precisely a debate that was taking place in the Islamic Golden Age between Averroes and Avicenna. Uh, Avicenna was the Neoplatonist component of this, who's saying the same theological arguments, except for now, of course, we're in the literature of ancient, uh, of, of the Quran, um, and saying, look, you know, th this is the way you approach this, is with metaphysics, faith, overcoming human reason, um, whereas someone like Averroes is like, no, no, much more heavier, much more heavily relying on Aristotle. In fact, one of the things that happens, as we'll see, with the Islamic Golden Age, that does not happen in the Renaissance, is, in the Islamic Golden Age, basically Avicenna wins. And it gives all of the thinking after this a very, very heavily metaphysical bent. And we'll see why this is important. Because in the Renaissance, one of the things that comes in is a very heavily human and experiential bent that has not really been there uh, previously. So if you, but, but this is all mixed, by the way. This is not like one moment this happens. So one of the scholars that we're going to look at is someone like Petrarch. This is the first quote there. Um, no one, it seems to me, can hope to equal Augustine, who nowadays could hope to equal one who, in my judgment, was greatest in an age fertile in great minds. So Augustine is the founder of, and generally considered the first great humanist scholar. And so at one point, he's writing humanist texts. He's, he's giving um, um, impetus to these classics. But who does he rely on? He relies on Augustine, many hundreds of years older, metaphysical, theological. And in fact, almost the exact opposite of the humanist tradition. And so this is always important to keep in mind. The people who were participating in the Renaissance didn't get up one morning and say, well, I've got to become a Renaissance person today. Forget all that old stuff. Uh, and now we're just going to go to new things. And it was a long, long, several hundred year developing process. And that's why I love Petrarch as, as a symbol here. So he is one of the first humanists. And why are they called humanists? And I give you the, the famous Vitruvian man there. People, everybody seen this Vitruvian man from Da Vinci? Um, so, because you put the human central, it's, it's not complicated. What are you concerned with, the metaphysical or the human? And when you start taking the human as the central element of your concern, this is a, this is a big change. And so if you look at Vitruvian Man by Da Vinci, 
This is just a classic example because it's the human as divinely proportioned. This is, this is, this is the human as the perfect embodiment of divine proportions. Which is an are we damaged, fallen, awful? Are we subject to original sin? Or is it possible for us to be divine? Now, Da Vinci, of course, does not argue we're divine, but when he puts you in the two of the perfect forms, the square and the circle, and has you with perfect uh, relations and proportions. By the way, human beings don't look like this. It's important to note. Human beings, if you, if you try this on real humans, it doesn't work very well. Uh, so it's a bit of a cheat. Uh, but if you're Da Vinci, you can get away with it. So keep this in mind, because when Petrarch, for the letters, writing, thinking, translating, um, poetry, starts emphasizing the human, at the same time, people like Da Vinci, although he comes much later, but it embodies this idea. The human is something interesting, powerful, important, potentially perfect. Which, by the way, is precisely the opposite of what St. Augustine was arguing. He was arguing that it's not that way. We're, we're not good, we're fallen, we're terrible, etc., etc. Um, and then you can move on to someone uh, like Machiavelli to give you a sense of the importance of the classics. When evening comes, I return home and enter my study. On the threshold, I take off my workaday clothes, covered with mud and dirt, and put on the garments and, of court and palace. Fitted out appropriately, I step inside the venerable courts of the ancients, where, solicitously received by them, I nourish myself on that food that alone is mine and for which I was born, where I am unashamed to converse with them and to question them about the motives and actions, and they, out of human kindness, answer me. And for four hours at a time I feel no boredom. I forget all my troubles, I do not dread poverty, and I am not terrified of death. I am absorbed into them completely. I think it's the clearest statement of, of what was happening. This was written in a letter. But you can, this over and over again. What are you doing? Oh, I'm reading the classics. Who are you reading? Oh, I'm reading the Greeks. I'm, I'm reading the Romans. I'm reading Cicero. I'm reading Plato. I'm reading Aristotle. Uh, uh, Thucydides, Herodotus. They were just completely engaged. It was the most magical thing that had happened in their lives. Um, again, if we look at Erasmus, I have turned my entire attention to Greek. The first thing I shall do, as soon as the money arrives, is to buy some Greek authors. After that, I shall buy clothes. <laughs> right? First thing, Greek text. Second thing, clothes. Right? I mean, this is the, this is the priority. Um, and Da Vinci's Vitruvian man here, why Vitruvian? Because Vitruvius was a Latin scholar who wrote basically the first major work in the Western world on architecture, called On Architecture, conveniently enough, uh, De Architura, but it just means On Architecture. Um, and the Vitruvian proportions come from that book. So even da Vinci, who was not a particularly literate man relative to scholars of his age, never had any Greek um, and never really got that firm a grip on Latin. Um, but enough that he could, he could go through these key texts and it influenced everything that he did. So what's weird about this, and, and not, not in the least bit pre predictable, I would say, is why were they reading all these texts? One, partly they came from ancient collections that were kept alive in monasteries and had been translated. 
partly a bunch of them came um, with the uh, Islamic Golden Age coming into modern day Spain and then reaching the rest of Europe. Some of them came when Constantinople fell uh, to the Crusaders, by the way. The, the Constantinople did not fall to the Muslims much later, but the Crusaders went in and sacked the place. And a bunch of Greek scholars said, right, we're out. And so they came in and brought some text with them. But mostly this is all Latin. The Greek helped later, but mostly this is stuff that's in Latin. A lot of the Greek had been translated into Latin. And the weirdest thing ever happened. So the Bible, not in Latin, written in Greek and Hebrew primarily, a little bit of other stuff. Um, bad Greek, by the way, really not very good Greek. This is one of the weird things about the New Testament. Um, so it is, it's sort of embarrassing Greek uh, relative to like the Greek, if, if, if in, the, in the, the Greek of the classical age authors compared to the Greek of the New Testament is sort of like, wow, that's amazing too. Well, that's pretty good for a sixth grader. I mean, it's the very big, it's embarrassing actually. This is what Greek scholars find as soon as they start reading it. They're like, ooh. But so the Bible was translated into a language that it never existed in, Latin. And that became the official language of the Catholic Church. And so then you have the, the Bible in Latin, the Vulgate, and there's other editions and you know, various uh, versions of this. So no one can read it because no one speaks Latin. So only the priesthood of the Catholic Church could read the language that the Bible was in, which is not a language the Bible was originally in at all. And so they had to train people to read Latin. But they didn't have any other Latin text because the only text they had that was in Latin was the Bible. And so what do you look for? Cicero. You look for some of the other texts. Aristotle, they had some Aristotle. They had a little bit of Plato. There's some other medieval Latin texts around. There's some earlier Latin texts around, but a lot of the Latin texts around and a lot of the good Latin texts around are actually from Romans because that was actually their language, right? And so you could read the theological stuff in this very sort of uh, not very well written, stylistically questionable, or you could read Cicero. And everybody said, ooh, Cicero's good. Ovid, oh, he's really good, right? The, all, so all Virgil, we like Virgil. So if you can read, uh, say, 7th century, 8th century Latin manuscript from a church father, or Ovid, everyone voted for Ovid. And so weirdly, it turned out that the education of your most religious people centered on Latin, which meant, hey, you're gonna read the classics. Not, not intentionally, this was not a plan. It just sort of happened. And so you get this whole group of scholars who, because they're trying to learn their religious text, are learning Latin, and in the process of learning Latin are also learning all these classical authors. And of course, they want more of the classical authors. This drove the demand. Um, and then the Catholic Church becomes sort of Europe-spanning. So every court, of which there were many, has its own language, versions of, I mean, these are all dialects, by the way. The modern version of these languages are not there yet. So you've got one, dialects of French, dialects of Italian, dialects of Spanish, dialects of German, just all over the map, because you don't have mass media or anything to standardize this. So it's, it's not like there's a group of German-speaking peoples. There's like 18 dialects in German. There's not like four dialects in France. There's a lot of dialects in France. Spain, forget Spain. Spain, don't, it's amazing how many dialects they had, right? Italy, crazy. 
Um, so you want to communicate with everybody. And who's the one trans city-state, trans-regional language in power? It's the Catholic Church. So anybody, anywhere who wanted to be somebody, it's important, sort of figured, hey, we need to learn Latin, which means we need to learn A, the Vulgate, the Bible, and B, all of these pagan authors. It's a weird, it's a weird idea. It really is a crazy, you have to get that in your mind, how bizarre this is. The, 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 the furthest example, Thomas More, which we'll see here in a second, I mean, is, so there's this tension already. And as soon as you start reading the Roman authors, you realize that the Roman authors say repeatedly, gosh, if only we were as good as the Greek authors. Right? You have all of these references. You have all these quotes. You have all these translations. Cicero, many of his work are filled with translations of sections of the Greek authors. And of course, the New Testament was actually written in Greek. Um, so all of a sudden, some of these scholars start thinking, wow, it'd be great if we learned some Greek. This is what Erasmus is known for. He's an, he's an amazing Greek scholar, right? This translation of the, of the Old Testament and New Testament. Um, so through this, like I said, just nobody planned this. You just end up with this kind of strange, um, what would you call it, happenstance. Ooh, you're hearing a ringing? Yeah, yeah let's yeah. turn that down just a little. There we go. Hopefully that's better. Um, you hear the strange happenstance where people are uh, not intentionally, but they're learning pagan authors that cause them to begin to question some of the things that they're reading in their texts. And so perfectly devout, in fact, some of the most devout people in your uh, educated population are going, hey, wait a second. What about this? What about that? And thinking in a way that's completely alien to the way things are presented in the Vulgate, the Latin Bible. It's just different. It's not wrong. It's just they're just alien. And so it's kind of blows everybody's mind. They sort of go, wow, what's going on? And this culminates in a figure like Thomas More, who's, who's if you don't know, he's an English um, man who rises up to power and prominence only to be beheaded. And so Thomas More's Utopia, there's a great passage. Utopus is the guy who settled Utopia, so he's the original founder of Utopia. Having understood that before his coming among them, the old inhabitants had been engaged in great quarrels concerning religion, by which they were so divided among themselves that he found it an easy thing to conquer them, since instead of uniting their forces against him, every different party in religion fought by themselves. After he had subdued them, he made a law that every man might be of what religion he pleased and might endeavor to draw others into it by force of argument and by amicable and modest ways, but without bitterness against those of other opinions. This is one of the earliest arguments for freedom of religion, freedom of religious expression, free choice. Now, Thomas More was beheaded because he refused to recognize Henry VIII as the head of the church. And he stayed loyal to his faith, the Catholic Church. And to me, this embodies the tensions inside the Renaissance. He is making this incredibly articulate, clearly specified argument for religious tolerance. But he is so deeply religious that he would rather have his head cut off 
than bow to Henry VIII and just be rich and powerful. That was his choice. All he had to do was say, yeah, Henry, you're the head, and he's rich and powerful. Instead, he says, no, I'd rather have my head cut off. It's, it's this bizarre mix of deeply held faith. Erasmus, the same thing. And you read Erasmus's work, and you think this guy must be sort of at least vaguely agnostic. He wasn't deeply religious. So it's this mix of faith and sort of pagan uh, Greek and Roman philosophical ideas that for a couple hundred years they sort of made work. And then it all fell apart. Because it turns out that you can't square Aristotle with the Old Testament. It's impossible. Uh, you, you just can't make it work. Apparently you can make it work longer than you would think. That at some point, what's more important, the human, the Truvian man, or metaphysical revelation? And slowly but surely, the Renaissance decides that it's metaphysical revelation that has to go. It's a long-running struggle, both within people and between groups and, and power. But that is really the core of it. What's first, the humanist, the human, or the theological metaphysical. And like I said, in the Islamic tradition, the metaphysical wins absolutely. In the Renaissance tradition, it's very much more vexed and divided. But because of the emphasis on the human, you get this different element. And this is the new one. So the two figures I think you can look at here, although there's, of course, piles in the Renaissance, uh, one is Brunelleschi. Uh, and if people know Brunelleschi's dome, Il Duomo, uh, which means the dome, uh, you know, the, 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 it's, it's, it's this incredible work of architecture. It's the largest, um, I still think it's the largest uh, dome made from brick in the world. I mean, it's vast. It's unimaginably large. And when they built the church that the dome sits on top, they had no idea how to build that dome. So they just figured... We'll figure it out eventually. And eventually they did, because they hired Brunelleschi. Now what's important here is people have been building amazing things in, throughout history. I mean, this is you know, the Parthenon, uh, the Colosseum, you have all you know, Mayans, are getting, which talk about they're going crazy. Chinese are doing some cool stuff. Um, but in the Renaissance, people like Brunelleschi all of a sudden acquired amazing status. He's an architect a designer, an engineer. He's making bricks. He's working in metal. In almost every country and in every civilization prior to the Renaissance, he might be amazing. People might know him, but he's third rate. But with figures like Brunelleschi, you begin to get this new power, which is like, well, hey, if you can build a dome, you're really great. You're not just a servant or a tradesman. You're actually someone of power and importance and potentially influence, someone that the political forces want to curry favor with because you make them look good because you can do things like the dome. That's amazing. And what this means is human capacity, engineering, real world, building real stuff that you can kick starts to give honor and position. Da Vinci, of course, being the greatest example, because Da Vinci was not a great humanist scholar. It's important to remember this. 
Many, many, many of the Renaissance figures were famous for being writers, poets, thinkers, and translators, just like many of the figures in the Islamic Golden Age. Ah, Da Vinci was none of those. Da Vinci had the capacity to do whatever you asked him to do, and that made him incredibly admirable. So here's a quote from Da Vinci. Uh, many will think they may reasonably blame me by alleging that my proofs are opposed to the authority of certain men. By the way, authority of certain men means Aristotle, Plato, and the church fathers, and people quoting them. That's the certain men. Uh, held in the highest reverence by our inexperienced judgments. Not considering that my works are the issue of pure and simple experience, who is the one true mistress. These rules are sufficient to enable you to know the true from the false. And this aids men to look only for things that are possible and with due moderation, and not to wrap yourself in ignorance, a thing which can have no good result, so that in despair you would give yourself up to melancholy. How do you judge true and false? Personal experience. This is new. The no wells new. It did exist in the, in the Greek world, but they did, Plato didn't like that, and Aristotle was sort of vague on it. He came and went. But Da Vinci doesn't say, oh, it's true if it's logical. He doesn't say it's true if God says it's true. He doesn't say it's true if I get divine revelation. It's not true if I quote a church font. It's true if my experience demonstrates it's true. That's the ultimate Vitruvian man. If, if, the, if Brunelleschi's dome does not fall, he's right. If Brunelleschi's dome falls, He's wrong, right? It's this very core pragmatism. And again, it's not that people like da Vinci, although not like da Vinci, not people who were skilled and could build things haven't existed for centuries or thousands of years at this point. It's that all of a sudden someone like da Vinci is the most in-demand person in Europe. Every court wants him. They're bidding awards for him. He moves all over the place. Why? Because he can execute just about any kind of project that you want done. But he's not a servant. When he goes to court, he sits with the princes. He sits with the dukes. He sits with the counts. And they honor him. So that, to find an engineer that is honored sitting with a Caesar or a Pasha or a Shah al-Shah throughout history is... I, I want to say impossible, but I won't say that because you never want to say that. So I'll say very difficult. But here it is. Brunelleschi, honor. Michelangelo, who, of course, did a little work himself, uh, also did libraries. The Laurentian Library by Michelangelo. I mean, it's worthless as a library because you can't put any books in it. But by God, is it beautiful. But it's when there weren't many books, and so you didn't need to make something that held a lot of books. You just need something beautiful to hold very few books. That he achieved magnificently. But he also built and reinforced the, um, I forget what city, was it Florence? I forget. Anyway, it was in a city that was under siege, and they put him in charge of the engineering of the defenses. So here is an engineer, poet, by the way, in his own lifetime he was known as a poet, architect, painter, who argues with popes, fights with 
all of his, his peers, knows all of the important people. See, that's the difference. People know the Elgin marbles. The, the, the artist who carved them was put to death for sacrilege. Right? That, see, that's that totally different, hey, it's nice, but you did it wrong, so we're going to kill you. As a poet, I can't, the, the artist's name just popped out of my head. But there's a famous um, Last Supper that is packed, I mean, absolutely packed with people, including jugglers, a monkey, and some drunk soldiers. And, and when the Pope saw it, the Pope was like, uh, don't remember the monkeys from the Bible. And the, and the painter, oh, I wish I could remember his name, because it's such a seminal moment, because the painter doesn't say, oh, I'm sorry, Mr. Pope. The painter's like, hey, you want a Last Supper, there's the Last Supper. <laughs> if you don't like it, you paint your own damn Last Supper. And so they changed the name of it. That's, what they, that's how they dealt with it. Because, you know, it, it, historically, generally, you just put that guy to death. But enough status had accrued to them and their groups that the Pope was like, ah, ooh, it's so good. And it's really great. And we should keep it around. So I won't, I'll pay him anyway. I won't kill him or put him in prison. Um, we'll, we'll just change the name and that'll make everything groovy. People, have anybody seen this one? It's a very famous. It's like, I can't remember the old name. But it's like I said, drunk soldiers, monkey. It's just crazy. Um, and the Pope was not happy, but they, they took it. <clears throat> and so those shifting elements, now we're appealing to the ancients who bring in this pagan uh, sensibility that has nothing to do with, uh, with, with the civilization as it existed at that time. And this new power of the engineer, the architect, the, the guy who can do things. Brunelleschi also making lenses. What's crazy, and the perfect example of this from the Islamic Golden Age is they figured out how lenses work and didn't make them. Right? It seems crazy to us. But they really worked out optics. I mean, they had it. And then went, well, we don't want to grind lenses. That's boring. Right? There's no money in it. No respect. And if I go someplace and get dirty grinding lenses, well, I can't hang out with the people that matter, so I'm not going to do that. And there's just enough of a shift in the Renaissance that people thought, oh, no, I'm going to, I'm going to grind lenses. I'm going to do, mess around with metallurgy. I'm going to, and so all of these sorts of technological, not scientific, by the way, they really hadn't worked out the scientific method yet. Um, actually, the Islamic, it, interestingly, the Islamic Golden Age was further ahead on the scientific method than the Renaissance was, but the Renaissance was actually doing it. Um, and, so, and so all of a sudden, you get all of this press. So if anybody's seen Da Vinci's notebooks, like 75% like of that stuff is just wrong. But what it is, is he's experimenting in his mind. Can you do this? Can you do this? Can you do this? But some of it was built, some of it worked, some of it was ethical, some of it was accurate, much of it was wrong. But that's not, people always say, oh, well, so much of it was wrong. That's not what's important. The important thing was he is experimenting with his mind. How would this work in the real world? And obviously, he often determined that it wouldn't work in the real world, so turn the page. This is just like architects. Everybody, every designer does that now. How about this? Uh, no, it's a bad idea. Turn the page. Right? It's just, we just happen to have his pages, which is phenomenal. And so that impulse meets a couple more important elements. The Renaissance, again, not unicausal, like anything uh, interesting and complex. Um, 
new urbanization. Cities are beginning to grow. You're getting money and you're getting city centers that have sufficient population density to support the crafts. So you don't get a few locations where there's a little bit of scientific, not scientific, technological advancement. You get 30, 40 different cities where people are messing around trying stuff out. And so you really start to get all these interesting technological developments, not the least of which, by the way, moving type. Right, the printing press, Gutenberg. And people, we always think of the printing press as the simple press, right? Because relative to our technology, it is simple. But it, it involves so many different elements. Paper making, step one, from the Arabs, by the way. Um, you have to have good inks. So this is sort of rudimentary chemistry. You have to have the type that is a mix of, it's metal, and it has to be hard so that it, it you know, you can use it over and over again, but not so hard that you can't carve those letters into it, right? Or, or pour them. You have to be able to make the letters, so not too hard. So all of these different technologies have to come together so that you can do the printing press, which, of course, once they get that, boom, we're off and running. Then, it, then you really get the explosion. Roughly 1500s, the books start pouring out. Just if you want a date in the, in, in the sand. It's, they, the press is earlier, but by the time you hit the 1500s, you have presses all over Europe, and they're really starting to crank out the material. Um, so uh, those sorts of advances, but again, printing press is also terrifyingly expensive. So you, know, you have to invest a lot of money. So where does all the money come from? One, trade. Trade is really beginning to expand. Uh, and two, all sorts of bizarre banking. So the Medici's, the Fuggers, if you just look at these two families, you can see that people always like, oh, our banking system is crazy and there's all these options and derivatives. The Medici's and the Fuggers, you could bring them forward to the day, it'd take them one minute to, to come up to speed. Like, oh, computers, do that? Yeah, okay, great, that's better than sending it by a guy on a you know, mule. But other, other than that, they, I mean, they pretty much had it. I mean, they did every possible kind of option, loan, shares, reverse mortgage. I mean, they had it all, the whole panoply of it. And this gave them incredible financial leverage. Because remember, at this time, not everybody knows how to do this. And so increased urbanization meets financial, not just more money from trade, although important, but actual new financial systems. Bookkeeping, for instance, is developed now, um, and, and or advanced bookkeeping, double entry bookkeeping, that kind of thing, really comes to the fore. Uh, you get the, the, the advanced capacity to give loans. You have all of the Greek and Latin texts that have come in from the Arabic world. You have the Greek texts that have come in when, when Constantinople is sacked by the Fourth Crusade, I think. Fifth Crusade? Fourth Crusade. One of those crusades sacked it. Um, you, you get the ancient texts that are being discovered in the monasteries. And so you have literate people with new ideas, which are actually old, interacting with people who are building engineering and have the money to do it. Where did the money come from to do all this? A lot of it came from the Medici's and the Fuggers, who were loaning at a spectacular rate. I mean, unimaginable quantities of money are changing hands. Um, in fact, it, people couldn't figure it out, how they could do it. I mean, one example is they were trying to, I forget who wanted to become, uh, 
uh, the head of the Holy Roman Empire. And there was only certain cities that could vote. There's only a certain number of electors. So of course, being an elector is a very good job because it allows you to get bribes. So you can choose the next Holy Roman Emperor. And the Fuggers loan, it was, the, the, it, anyway, the important part of it was one of the German principalities that was in the running to have one of their people go, the loan the Fuggers gave to buy one member's vote was 10 times the entire income of an entire German state. And so they just couldn't figure out, they're like, how can you, where does, how is that possible? Right, we were gonna go 1,000 florins and you loaned 500,000 florins. Right, they just, they had left the cash economy. They were into the loan economy. They're into, you know, marginal reserve and all that kind of fun stuff. But they were early into it. So all of this, all of these revelations are taking place. And they all come together to produce this seething mass that's not really any one thing. There's no like, oh, what is the Renaissance? There's art, there's architecture, there's new literature, there's incredible engineering, there's a rediscovery of the past. But it's important to remember, that's what Renaissance people think, oh, rediscovery of the past, but not really because it was this very strange version of the ancient world. Because they didn't have all the texts, they had a lot, and the parts they were interested in were very different from what we would go as this is representative of the past. Um, and so it was the, they had sort of a version of the ideas of the past that came through. But one thing that was reborn, this is one thing I said, uh, except for one thing, uh, is again the Vitruvian man, that's why I put it there, is the notion that man is central. That the, it's the human that is the most important. Uh, man is the measure of all things, essentially. It comes back to the fore. It's not the only value but it comes rolling back with incredible power. And so that when you get something like the Protestant Reformation, which is coming up, right, sort of marks the sort of either the end or the beginning of the end of the Renaissance, one of Luther's claims is like, look, man does not need an intermediary between themselves and God. You can figure it out for yourself. Even women could figure it out for themselves, theoretically, right? Think about that for a second. Ah, uh, you don't need an intermediary. You can do it on your own. Now, that means you become vastly, vastly more important. You're into one-on-one -on -one relationship with God. That's pretty good. By the way, this, this idea had been around. This is not new. But with the rediscovery of the ancient text and the emphasis of humanism that it gave, all of a sudden, it became viable and vital. And people started saying, yeah, yeah, I go for this. I can believe in this. I can, I can make this be a part of my thought process. So when I ask, what should I do? What's right? What's wrong? It's not, oh, appeal even to one of the Greek scholars or Latin scholars or church fathers, but appeal to my own reason. And this is why the Aristotle-Plato argument is so crucial. Because Aristotle presses logic and reason. The scholastics ran with this to an absurd degree, by the way. When we get to the Enlightenment, we'll realize what this means. Uh, but, but, the, but that presses that logic. And who deploys the logic? Hey, hey, we get to deploy the logic. So it's liberating. 
if it's not, if you have to rely, as Plato says, on divine inspiration, well then whose divine inspiration counts? Right? This is the problem with metaphysics, is there's no answer to that. It generally comes down to force. Um, so there's no good answer to that. So this new mix of logic, primarily Aristotelian, and uh, this growth of the importance of individual observation experience that you can apply to re-conceptualize the world is, I think, the core of the Renaissance. It's what's reborn. Lots of other things are not new, they're cultivated, they're developed, but that does seem to be the core that's new. And a couple of figures to think about here. I know we've gone through a lot of people, but there's so many people in the Renaissance. Uh, Copernicus, of course, right? The sun is the center of the universe, not the earth. This doesn't seem like a big deal to us. It was a really, really huge deal. A, blasphemous. So it goes against the church teachings. And I don't, I forget when uh, he was, because he was sanctioned until like 1890. And they decided to go, okay, we'll give him a pass. Um, after he died, by the way, his, his, his work was not released until after he died, this particular one. But what he had done is he had done the observations, done the calculations, reason, logic, insight, and said, well, look, and he, by the way, he's not the first person to say this, but he's the first person to really make it stick and to have the observations to prove it. He says, look, the sun is not going around the earth. The earth is going around the sun, as are the other planets, which means we're not the center of the universe, which means, wow, that has really deep theological problems, particularly then. Um, and then you look at someone like Columbus, who sails off to discover India. Um, he goes in the wrong way to find a country he can't reach doing that, with maps that are completely inaccurate, looking for gold that is relatively rare in the new world, and finds land with gold. It's just incredible. I mean, it really, it's like, it is absolutely unbelievable uh, how, how that worked out. But again, so he goes out, this is also the age of exploration, um, and he comes back and announces, hey, there's a new world out there. There is a new world. And this totally blew everybody's mind. Again, it's, it's hard for us to conceptualize. So at one point, in one way, they've discovered all these ancient texts that are blowing their minds. So for instance, when you want to build something, you go to... Vitruvius's text on architecture. That was, that was the best book they had for building. It had been written, let's see, about 1300, first century AD. So it had been written about 1300 years earlier. That's the guidebook for architecture. And, and so all this text coming in, both technological, philosophical. And then the world is remade. And so it was just sort of over these few hundred years, maybe 200, 175, uh, just revelation after revelation. And the, and the end of this is, of course, you get basically a new thing going. It's something that's completely different now. It's not reborn. It's just new and different. It's technology linked to philosophy, linked to this concept of the human as central and centrally important. Uh, and not just 
one human, the king, or two humans, or the aristocracy, but theoretically every human, hence humanism, hence the true being man. We're, what's the model of perfection? Humans are the model of perfection. Even the ancients, even the Greeks sort of, yeah, were leery on that. Famously, Aristotle said, well, just some men are born slaves. That's clear. That's why there's slavery. Right? But once you get the humanist movement like this, people start going, hey, maybe we should rethink this slavery thing. Because humans all of a sudden have value full stop. And that's new, by the way. It's a really a radical innovation. Generally speaking, that's not a popular opinion throughout history. And so when you think about the Renaissance, I really think don't think, A, don't think the Renaissance, because that's wrong. There's, there, I mean, again, the Islamic Golden Age, China is doing amazing things a whole bunch of times. Uh, you have the Enlightenment that's come. I mean, there's been these periods of cultural fluorescence that happen throughout history, and they're amazing. And so we don't want to think of the Renaissance. Certainly a renaissance, that's, that's not a problem. It's certainly an amazing one. But it's not something being reborn. It's really something new coming into the world. It's, it's, it's a, a, a new vision of the centrality of the human linked to uh, the financial and cultural structures that allow the human capacity to express itself, to remake the world, to reimagine the world in a way that had never existed before. And basically, everything that's been coming in the Western world since then has its roots right there. It's about to launch the Reformation. It's about to uh, create scientific and technological revolutions that, that you know, we're still living with to this day, trying to figure out what they mean. Financial, complete development of financial systems. Um, and, but most importantly and centrally, this concern. This is where we get the idea that we matter as individuals. The human is significant and should be treated as such. That's why you know it's the humanist tradition. Again, something like this existed a little bit before, but that's what's born in the Renaissance. The centrality of the human and the human capacity to express all of its powers and to be respected for that. So the Renaissance, thank you very much. Thank you.